if you can articulate what a good society is, then whether you like it or not, all your decisions will support that. My name's Andrew Lee, and welcome to The Good Life, a politics-free podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers, about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to tell your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Founded in 1993, the Cranlana Program is a non-partisan, not-for-profit organisation that aims to promote informed discussion on matters of responsible leadership and ethical practice. It's trained thousands of business, community sector and public service leaders to think more carefully about values and justice. Drawing, drawing unashamedly on the Western canon, its graduates rave about the Cranlana approach and how it's changed their lives. But most Australians will never get to do the program, so today's episode looks to lift the lid on the Cranlana approach. What can each of us learn from a bunch of long-dead philosophers? How can reading ancient Greek plays help us live a better life? My guest is Kate Latimer, who's been Cranlana's Chief Executive Officer since 2009. A former journalist, documentary maker and public servant, she moved into the Cranlana program from her work with high-level policy makers. Kate, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Andrew. Pleasure to be here. So tell me how you got into the ethics and values game. Ah. <laughs> so when I... Just before I turned 40, a very close member of my family was killed and it was abrupt and out of the blue. And I was plunged into a kind of um, sea of not only despair but grief. How do you make sense of that sort of thing? And at the time I had a lot of um, work on overseas. With my, I had a small business where we looked at settlement issues in immigration and we brought together um, groups of people who were either geographers or researchers who had done the surveys over a long amount of time of what makes people stay in a country and what makes them happy. And we brought them together with policymakers. It was a very simple idea. But I was overseas at the time running one of these and I was still trying to work out how to get through the grief. I mean, it's, uh, grief is a funny old phase. Everyone has it. And we're not prepared for it. And if you are not religious, there's very few ways that you can exercise the way through your grief. Mm. So I was overseas and I was looking at a section that had been roped off in Rome. And it, it was uh, I was looking down and there were cats there. And I, I said to my colleague, what do you think this is? And they said, I have no idea. And I had no idea. And at that moment, without any other thought, I just felt that I was bored with my own ignorance. I was unable to say <laughs> who came first, Augustus Caesar or Julius Caesar, and what does it matter and why is this section roped off? So when I came back to Australia, I went back to uni and I studied, I went back to square one and I studied classical history. And there was something about looking at the continuum 
of humankind that relieved my grief. It gave purpose. It gave a, a, a real sense that we've been struggling with ideas, with, with injustice, with, with, um, with things beyond our control mm. since humans started writing. And, of course, before then, when we're all not committing to paper. So there was something that gave great relief and also provoked thoughts that I needed to think there was a um, – I remember sitting once reading about how Greek – the Greek elite treated their farmers and often their farmers were slaves. They kept them in a, a big dorm and there was no five days work for two days off. They basically worked until they died and it was going through being quite prescriptive about what you needed to give your – your farming staff and they gave them wooden shoes once a year as a treat but they took their old shoes away and there was just something in that about the immense cruelty of privilege mm. these are the thoughts that are prompted i guess if we want to understand suffering reading about the past has, has got to be a good way to do it given that previous generations have experienced far more suffering than us uh, the the notion of losing a child was was once fairly normal. Uh, the uh, uh, the idea of doing backbreaking work was par for the course. Holidays were unusual. So, and never uh, owning your own home, never owning the land you're working on, mm, mm. and how your fortune can change depending on who's in power. So, of those philosophers, do you remember one that spoke to you in particular? Oh, philosophers, yes. I, I'm going to throw in a um, two cents for Thucydides too. There's a, there's a clear-sightedness. And a, he's a historian, not a philosopher. There's a clear-sightedness and a... He wants to understand the moral reasons why Athens lost the war. Mm. So as an Athenian, he's highly critical of his people, really. This he is the, war them. Between, the Peloponnesian Wars between yeah. Athens and Sparta. Thank you. Yeah. Yes, that one. That went on and Athens was convinced it was going to win. There was no way it was going to lose. And in that hubris, they started losing. Thucydides was a general in, in that war and there was a, a small skirmish that he lost the battle with and for that he got sent into Coventry. And from a distance, he writes history almost in real time. He's got the connections. He sees the war as it devolves. And he's watching Athens, his beloved country, from exile. He's watching them lose. I love his clear-sightedness. I love his criticism of his own people and trying to find, because it's trying to find the moral reasons why they failed. And it's to do with leadership. It's to do with hubris, it's to do with, um, oh, absolute arrogance and a forgetting of the past. I guess, too, for those uh, Greek philosophers so much, they're, they're engaged with the community so deeply I and mean, the idea of somebody who led, their, who led troops into battle, who had seen his own men killed in front of his eyes, 
then to go away and write a, a, a philosophical or a, politi a political treatise is yeah. it's kind of unusual these days. You don't, uh, uh, you know, when you when you think about books written by generals, you don't normally expect that they will attain the same level of philosophical wisdom as uh, as, as a book written by a philosopher. So, have you read anything of a modern day general that's written something that concerns the morality of the people? You see generals striving towards this, um, but often those books are, are written in collaboration with others. Uh, often they're, um, they're a collection of, of battlefield stories rather than trying to draw greater lessons, certainly in the, in the limited reading I've done of that genre. Yeah. yeah. So philosophers. So the philosophers um, who are operating at the same time or his contemporaries, really, mm. are the big three, Socrates, Plato and Aristotle. So our readings start with those. We start with Plato. And the reason why we look at the Western canon, I think you could really take any philosophical um, school of thought mm. from, I mean, they're all China or India. They've got extraordinary res resources in their philosophers. We do the Western canon. And we do it because we've almost absorbed their ideas, even if we haven't read them. We've absorbed them through our skin. Like I remember for years using the great Hobbesian line, life is nasty, brutish and short, without knowing where it came from. It was just part of the atmos. Mm. So we start with the classics. We start with Plato and we start with Aristotle. We then zoom into the modern era with Locke and Hobbes. We touch on a few until we get to the 20th century of Marx, uh, Sartre, uh, Simone Weil, a lot of the isms, utilitarianism, those sorts of things. And then we come to modern-day philosophers such as Singer and Nussbaum, Sen and others. So let's unpack that a little and think about uh, a DIY Cranlana for, uh, for our listener who is, uh, is not going to do your program but might want to put it together at home. Uh, one of the great things about all of these readings is they're essentially available freely online apart from a few of the recent philosophers. So starting with Plato, uh, I guess often regarded as, as, the, as the father of, uh, of, of philosophy or one of, the, one of the key founders, why should people read Plato? Plato's got a very dispassionate eye. He's, he's a member of the elite, of the Athenian elite. He was born into a very good family. So he had the excellent education. And then he joined Socrates and learned more from Socrates. Socrates has a manner where he doesn't actually tell you what the answer is. He just keeps asking you questions. So we work with the Socratic method. And it's a very good way of working out the corollary of your logic. So you think this, keep asking questions, keep asking questions. Where will that take you? Plato was his student. Plato's looking at the structure of society. He does a couple of things. He wrote, um, I'm going to say eight books, but it could be ten, books on the Republic, mm -hmm. which is an examination of how we really put together a society, what, what we have. He talks about an unhealthy society and what those elements are. He's quite prescriptive. Um, he has a healthy society. That's where we, um, we do what it is that our gifts are. We don't, we don't live to excess. We don't have more than we need. 
And then he talks about a, an ideal society. A lot of people get into, into deeper waters with Plato and the ideal society because it's quite confronting. And it sounds a bit barking mad at times. But there are some great things. One of them is that he thinks that we should be ruled by philosophers. And then another one is um, if you asked anyone to be a ruler, by their very inclination they'd say no, and that's a good ruler. <laughs> so there we go, Andrew. Ask all of, all of your colleagues if they would like to be rulers and maybe vote the one in that says no. Well, in, uh, in Billy Griffin's original plan for Canberra, the, uh, the ca Capitol Hill has not a parliament on top of it but a pantheon on top of it, ah. uh, paying tribute to the great thinkers of Australia. And so uh, it was the, the hubris of parliamentarians to, uh, to, to get rid of the pantheon <laughs> and, and put the parliament on top, on top of the big hill. And replace it um, with themselves. But, but uh, as you say, it's it's, uh, it's Plato pops up in all kinds of things. Uh, I did an interview uh, with Manny Noakes who wrote the CSIRO's Total Wellbeing Diet uh, and one of the uh, amusing things about that uh, conversation is the recognition that the Total Wellbeing Diet, which um, advocates grains and a little bit of meat and fruit and all things in moderation, uh, seems to hew quite closely to uh, Plato's ideal uh, diet recommendations. So he had his fingers in everything and I guess so much of what he wrote survived too, which is the, the great luck of, of our understanding yeah. of Plato. And luxury, right? isn't it? Yes, yeah. yes. Uh, and then moving on to Aristotle, Plato's student, uh, what, what, what insights do the, your Cranlana uh, participants draw from Aristotle? Well, Aristotle starts talking about the virtues. What do you need in place? If we have a great society, it needs to be made up of great people. So what does that mean? He is the student of Plato, so he's a student of Socrates by two, mm. um, and he starts talking about the virtues and what the virtues are. Prudence. Um, what does Aristotle tell us about prudence? Prudence is the greatest of all the virtues. Prudence is the one that we aim for. Prudence, and it, and it has a, a very complicated history. It means that you have a sense of what has happened in the past and that you're very clear-sighted about it. So... We see prudence when people don't rush in when there's a, a great orator who's very convincing. We weigh up what they're saying because we've got our feet firmly on the ground. We know where we stand. We're not swayed by great rhetoric. Um, there's also prudence about we're not trying to get rich quick. We're trying to work out what is good for society. It's, there would be thrift in there, there would be concern, there would be not stretching ourselves beyond our, beyond our needs. So this must be uh, a fascinating lesson to be teaching to some of your uh, participants who presumably are very driven type A personalities who've spent their entire life um, mm. rushing forward and, and moving quicker than those, those around them. Uh, how do they react when, uh, when, you, when you're talking about prudence? See, my feeling, my gut feeling, is that people who come to Cranlana are wanting something other than what they've got. So they've been climbing the career uh, trajectory. They've got to the top. They've got their holiday house. They've got everything, every physical thing that they need. Mm. But it's actually not enough. And there's something that happens to you that you need 
you want to, you want something that means something. Yes. Work no longer means something. And there's a sense that, of course, it means something, but it doesn't mean everything. I think people are hungry for this sort of discussion and ideas, mm. and we're not getting it anywhere else, unless you're religious where you have that conversation all the time. But in a secular society, you're not really getting those questions of meaning coming your way. We can see um, the popularity of Alain de Botton, his school of life, which I think is fantastic. It brings out things like how to be happy in your marriage or how to, how to lead a good life. Mm. These are central questions in philosophy. We approach it differently. But where else are you going to get these? Where are you going to get challenged on this? Like if I were to ask you, how do you lead a, a good life? What is a good life? Do we have those questions at our fingertips, those answers? So amongst our participants, I think there's a hunger for it. Mm. We want to take these things seriously. The average age is, I guess, over 40 in our participant group. And they've achieved great success in what we would say the temporal world. But they're clever and they're, um, they're capable and they're enormously adroit at doing things in society. So... To flip this, why do we focus on these people who are really the most privileged people in our society? It's because they can act immediately. Mm. They have at their fingertips an enormous workforce, an enormous power. And there's something about the leadership in Australia that we actually want them to think about the idea of what is a good society and to, once they articulate it, to go forth and bring it to being. And... Moving on through the sort of quasi-chronologically, uh, <laughs> we then come to uh, uh, Hobbes and Locke and Mill. Uh, any any of those thinkers who's, uh, who's, uh, who you want to sell to, to us? <laughs> um, look, Hobbes has got a very simple proposition. He studied the Greeks. He translated Thucydides' histories, for example. He knows... He knows what the Greek position is. In fact, there's a great line in philosophy that everything is a footnote to Plato, that philosophers are not only talking to their contemporary audience, but they're also answering questions that were first posed by Plato. And Hobbes is talking about, this is all very well and good, Plato, with your good society and your people who are virtuous and leading. But what if they're not? And we all have the experience that people behave badly if they're not being observed. Some people, most people, all of us. Um, there's things that we think we can get away with if no one's watching. So what do we do in a society where we know people behave badly? And he puts it in terms of um, physical threat. If I am weaker than you, then you can just come and club me. But if I have a gun, then I can... He doesn't have a gun. But, but might and and power will always dominate. Mm. So he asks us to make a pact that we hand over our authority, our power, to another source, the Leviathan. Now, I think he's wrong, and I'm not going to say why he's wrong, but it's a very hard argument to deal with because, of course, bad things happen all the time. Um, if I can get slightly distracted, there was a time when I was driving and I heard the news report that Darcy Freeman, a little girl, had been 
driving with her father in a car and had been thrown off the bridge, at the Westgate Bridge. And I just pulled over. It, it was so shocking. It was so yes. extraordinary and cruel and shocking. And it prompted me to investigate not the, the happy virtues of how we should be living and how, how great our society is and what a good society is, but what do we do with a fairly frowsy society? What, how do we stop that sort of thing? And our newest program is called Violence in Society. Mm. And it's an investigation into the darkness. It's a, an investigation into violence of all sorts. So looking at it philosophically, violence is where we're going to flip the Greeks' idea of what virtues are, which is to lead to a flourishing society. Happiness is a flourishing society. Violence is where you have a society where flourishing cannot exist. So in a philosophical sense, it's not just violence where um, you get stabbed or, or hit, although of course that's part of it. But looking at it philosophically, violence is where you create the conditions where people do not flourish. Mm. So for example, if we know that foreign aid stops child mortality educates young girls, which then has a blossoming effect on the rest of society, is it violence to cut our foreign aid? So this sounds like moving on now, now to Peter Singer and that idea that uh, if, you're, uh, if you think it's unethical to be worried about ruining a pair of shoes to wade into a lake oh, to save a drowning right. child, then, uh, then presumably it's unethical not to spend that amount of money uh, that the shoes would cost to save the life of a, of a child overseas. Yeah. Um, it, it, and d d d that, that purely utilitarian view, I guess, which is, which is at odds with how we typically think about violence in, in society. We were yeah. focused very much on the, uh, I suppose, categorical moral, moral reasoning. Um, you, yeah. And we're complicated. Yes. We're complicated. We, yeah. If there was a child, he makes this case that if you are walking past a house and there's a child sort of flailing in a pool, of course you'd jump in. Mm. And yet children, we know, we know in the back of our mind children are dying all the time. We're complex. Yes. And the Violence Project presumably draws on part in the work that you did as a documentary filmmaker looking at uh, family violence as, as well. Do you, do you find you're able to bring some of those sort of practical story t stories into the sort of more philosophical, theoretical approach to violence? Mm, it's an interesting question. I don't really know what to make of the violence of those documentaries. Um, I did the campaign for, the domestic violence campaign for the federal government um, and stayed with a family who had just turned upside down with a terrible story. And, and I think about them constantly where... There's not much you can do with that sort of violence it, as a way of thinking about things. Good things have happened to that family since, but man, oh man, what they went through and still go through. There's a bit at the end, one of the readings, in fact, we finish with a reading in Violence and Society. We finish with a reading which is Helen Garner's report on the Farquharson case which isn't far away from Darcy Freeman. And even if you don't read the book 
it's harrowing. Mm. But the last chapter is is sensational for making sense or helping us at least come to some sort of understanding. And it talks about her visiting the graves of the three young boys that were murdered in the dam by their father. And she talks about how um, these children belong to all of us. You can't complain that um, strangers are looking at the tombs and leaving flowers and toys for these children. These children belong to all of us. And actually I think This is a better way to go with violence, domestic violence, or violence against the self, or violence against a country. Mm. We need to look at it. We need to acknowledge it. And it belongs to us. Things are done in our name all the time. We need to claim it. So who are the philosophers who you draw on in Cranlana to, to get that sort of more holistic thinking, to have people thinking of themselves, not only thinking about sort of behaving well in the narrow personal relationships, but taking that broader society-wide uh, approach. Is, is, that, is that something that, that comes out of Nussbaum in particular? <laughs> oh, that was a clue. Yes. <laughs> I think asking a question of how would you like us all to live? Like what is the destination of a good society? That is the central claim of a lot of our philosophers, Mm. especially the bits that we choose in the course. So even asking the question and and trying to come with an answer, Nussbaum and Sen have got got a a, a great take on equity. But, and Singer, of course, Singer, you could pick up a book by Peter Singer today and have it read by tomorrow night. He's he's eminently readable. Yes. And, And I think Sen probably is too much a Sen. There's a great philosophy called, um, philosopher called Kwame Appiah and he runs a column in the New York Times like a, an agony aunt and asks common ethical questions. But he is a great, he's a great thinker. He's very accessible and he gets you thinking about, well, what's my role in a good society? What's mm-hmm. my position? And I think that small acts and big acts all add up. We can't dismiss the small acts too you can't be a, a great philosopher on the world stage and be a, a rat bag at home. Small acts matter. How, what changes do your Cranlana graduates report in their lives when you go back and, and check, in, mm. check in with them after doing the, the intensive course? How do they say it shapes them? This is a very hard question to answer. Uh, we get... We, we do seem to get positive responses, but I think that's because we're answering a question that people are hungry for. I don't know at what stage our participants are going to go, oh, but the aha moment is one of the great things. So they can come in and, and be very happy with the ideas of Plato and Aristotle and Locke and um, others even though they're in disagreement, those philosophers. Mm. But there will be a moment, guaranteed, during the week, if they are engaged in the texts, where they're going to go, oh, and everything turns upside down. And that's the bit you can't unknow. So they go back, hopefully, with a new vision. If you can articulate 
what a good society is, then whether you like it or not, all your decisions will support that. Like if I think a great society would have free public transport and I'm in that realm, mm. then all of the decisions that I do, whether I'm conscious of it or not, will be heading towards that. So that's why we work with people in the public service who are in positions of leadership because they have the power to make those sorts of calls. So our participants regularly go back and say that meetings are longer. <laughs> That's a downside. Meetings are longer because they need to know what the, what the end result of the decisions are. They need to be sure. Mm. Or they will report that decisions are quicker because you can still be faced with two options that you have to make a call on, and it's a wicked problem. Both outcomes are terrible. You know, I've only got a certain amount of money. Do I spend it here or do I spend it here? If I, Either way, somebody's going to miss out. So those sorts of decisions they report are easier to make because they're clear about what they stand for and what they hope to achieve. Some people report that they get a sense of anxiety, that time is short, and I think that's a really good one. I think that their career at the top is only for, what, another decade perhaps. And they need to make changes now, that they can't cruise through and get another holiday house. That's not important to them anymore. They know what they want to achieve and they need to get going. So I'm very happy about that anxiety. Um, and, and generally they, they come... You know, one of the most surprising things that people talk about is that their staff respond to them differently when they come back, that the staff and their partners notice a difference. And I think that working with philosophy, which is akin to beliefs, your belief system, where you stand, it's actually very hard to measure that yesterday I would have responded in this way, but now that I've done the program, I respond in this way. Mm. But when, you're, when the people who work with you or live with you notice a difference, that's fantastic. Is it that your graduates are then more present for those around them? Uh, is it that they're they're better at thinking through through decisions? What sort of changes do do those close to them notice? Mm. I don't think you can look at philosophy and divorce yourself from your role in the world. Mm. I said earlier, small acts and big acts. Yes. It has to have an impact. You have to see that the way that you're behaving with others or treating others or dismissing or disrespecting others has an impact. It has to. It has to be there. You can't unknow that. Mm. So I think that there would be more consideration. I think that there would be a sharper focus and more consideration of what you're actually doing in the workplace, that it's not just about achieving the triple bottom line. Now we've talked exclusively about uh, blokes in our uh, uh -huh. discu discussion of, uh, of, of philosophers. Uh, how do you bring in a, a feminine perspective or are there particular women philosophers who you, you draw into the crown line of conversation? This, Andrew, is the bane of my existence. Apparently women <laughs> didn't exist until the 20th century. So there are religious writings by women, but really the, the great philosophical writings of women, and, you know, 
I'm very happy to bring more women into the program. But if you're looking at almost a continuum, it's bloke, 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 bloke. It right. really is. It's wall-to-wall men. It's as if there was no other brand of human being. We have um, Harriet Taylor Mill talking about power and she is surgical in the way that she cuts up uh, the reason why men won't let women vote. Power makes itself the centre of moral obligation, she writes, which is that you start seeing ethics with your own glasses on. Ethics becomes what the power elite say it should be. Mm. Um, she's probably our earliest female philosopher. I love Simone Weil. She is... Uh, she came... She When they opened up the um, universities in France to women in the 19th century, 19th, 20th century, mm. dodgy on dates, um, she came in first and she was first admitted. Second was Simone de Beauvoir and third was Jean Fossart. <laughs> anyway, Simone Weil, has, she wrote a very interesting set of um, responses to how a society should be following the Second World War at a time when we really needed to think about how we, how we are with each other, that things that had gone so badly, really, following the war, that we never wanted to repeat this, and therefore what needs to be in place in our society. She's worth looking up. Hmm. She's just... She, and she goes through... And some of the things that we need in society are quite surprising. So, for example, the need for punishment. And it's at, on the surface you want to go, really, the need for punishment? But actually people need to make good and then be readmitted and they've, they've paid their penance. I think it's very good. Um, Martha Nussbaum, of course, um, is, is a contemporary philosopher of ours. Um, um, I, I think her ideas are great. I, to be honest, I find the way that she writes a bit um, difficult to read, but that's just me, maybe. Um, I mean, she takes a different view on that punishment notion, right? I mean, she's, she's much less, or she's very critical about the, uh, the idea of anger and, and about wanting to hurt others. Oh. Uh, she says that it just corrodes the soul. Mm. So her latest book, ah... That is Nussbaum. It is fantastic, her latest book. Have you read it? No. Well, she, she is a... I think she was an Aristotelian, um, which means, you know, that she really enjoyed... She engaged with the ideas of Aristotle and then she really sort of veered more towards the Stoics um, and you can see parts of their philosophy made real in her, her reading now. But... In anger, she talks about um, the Furies and how the Greeks had these three women who were mad as cut snakes and created all sorts of havoc. But then they, in um, the later rewriting of, of the Furies, they became these three sort of wise women um, and they gave over power. They gave up their anger and they gave over power. And she uses this as a springboard for talking about anger, that we do have power in our anger, but not of a great sort, not of a great sort for those around us and not for ourselves. 
And then she goes through and talks about those who, who have managed so that it's possible, this is, this is the thing, who have managed to forgive the enemies. Mm. And, of course, you know, in our lifetime, Nelson Mandela is this, you know, beacon of forgiveness. He, he learned Afrikaans so that he could talk to his jailers. He, he introduced his jailers to his guests as if he was um, in a hotel and that these were the doormen. Please, I'd like you to meet so-and-so, I'd like you to meet so-and-so, and presented them to him. A beacon for the way to live. And imagine South Africa without Nelson Mandela. Mm, mm. He was just somebody that you could say, look, if he can get over the great abuse and violence that was done to him and his people, if he can forgive his his enemies, then, you know, man, oh, man, we should at least try. <laughs> so her book is fabulous. Actually, I take everything I just said about Nussbaum back. This I, 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 I stayed up and read it. It was one of those page turners, which is something that you don't normally say about philosophy. Absolutely, yes. But anger, anger, I can't even remember its title. Anger and its, do you remember its title? It just came out earlier this year. It's part of our violence in society readings because you have to, you have to counter a way of dealing with violence that's perpetrated to yourself mm, mm. And, and to others. Anger and forgiveness, I think it is. Martha Nussbaum, you like her new stuff better than her old stuff. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I love Singer. Can I talk about Singer for a second? Please do. Singer put we out We had him this on the podcast a while back. He was brilliant. Ah, I bet he was. He did a book in uh, the late 70s, 1970s, called Animal Liberation. And... It's a really beguiling book. You just start reading it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And go along. And you're travelling down the road with him very comfortably going, yes, yes, yes. And then he just hits you with logic. Yes. If animals are sentient beings and they feel pain like you feel pain, then then how are you able to live with yourself knowing this? So at, when I read that, I, I started with chickens because he did a – if you don't want to give up meat, then don't read this book. But it, he just talks about chickens and the way that we treat chickens. And I thought, I, I can't do this anymore. You read the book, you stop eating pigs, you stop eating lobster, you stop eating everything. And that changed. If I have to say, one thing that did really change my life, Peter Singer's Animal Liberation, I can't go back. Once you know, you can't unknow. It's... Still, I understand the founding text for um, some of the animal liberation movements, right? And the question upon joining is, do you, do you accept the fundamental text in Peter Singer, Singer's oh, Animal really? Liberation? Wow. That, that's, that's, that's my, my understanding. Wow, okay. Yeah. It's very hard to disagree with. It's like Hobbes, you know, violence. People behave badly. It's very hard to argue with. Mm, mm. But animals being sentient beings and you're still going to go and cause their death, well, you have to live with that and make peace with that one. So you're purely vegetarian, no fish? Oh, I eat fish when I have to. Does that make sense? There are sometimes you go to dinner parties and you go, oh, fish, no one told you I was a vegetarian. So about twice a year I'll eat fish. Huh. I used to love fishing. Oh, well, do other things now. <laughs> so philosophy really has changed the way you live. Yeah. Are there other changes you've seen in your own life as a result of uh, your deep engagement with philosophy? I think you're 
think we kind of know where we need to be going. And, and when you read philosophy, it just gives you more strength to push through because it makes a logical case mm. on how you need to live. So I'm quite drawn to the Stoics. I like their I like their approach to uh, to living a disciplined life, to uh, accepting the role of pain and suffering, mm. uh, and to thinking about uh, the impact that you have on a broader society. Um, how important are the Stoics in the Kranlana curriculum? Quite drawn to the Stoics too. We don't specifically pull out any stoic writers we had a um we borrowed a great philosopher from um melbourne uni uh dan russell who's a american philosopher and he talked about the stoics and um he gave us the hard bits which is um how you need to accept what is in front of you. And he gave an example of a man who didn't mourn the death of his child. And so I have to say at that stage, I, I don't think I'm a Stoic. Yes, yes, there's there's a sense of Stoicism in extremis, which, uh, which can become a little ludicrous. Yeah. It's not a hundred miles from Buddhist teachings about not being too grasp, grasping of what's in mm. front of you. Mm. Um, but, yeah, there we go. I and that Buddhist notion that suffering is, is an inherent part of life uh, rather than something to, to be avoided and yeah. uh, sort of glossed yeah. over on, on a path to, uh, to eternal smiling happiness and That's right. eating ice cream in the middle of, uh, middle of meadows and so on. Uh, <laughs> on. On a fluffy cloud. Exactly, exactly. But there is also something about, um, I mean, one of the awful things about suffering is that there is clarity. It does bring clarity. It certainly sounds like it made a big difference in your life in terms of what you, what you then devoted your, uh, your, your career to. I think it saved me. I think it did. I think, um, I think suffering plunged me into a new adolescence where up wasn't down and down wasn't up, or up was down and down was up. You know, it was... It, it <laughs> You don't want to be back in that zone. I feel sorry for adolescents where everything's up for question. But there was a it, – it gave me ballast. It gave me a way of thinking about things that did seem true. Mm. And in a sea of confusion, that was most welcome. Which segues naturally to, uh, to the question, what advice would you give to your teenage self? Um... I struggle with this question. I know that it's you like this question, Andrew. I struggle with this one. I don't know. I don't I mean I can I can go flippant and say don't get a perm. Don't wear that dress. Don't go out with that person. <laughs> get a license, man. Don't wait till you're 24. <laughs> but I I I think I'm going, I'm going to not answer it with an answer, which is going to be very irritating for you. I wonder if we are the people that we wanted to be when we were teenagers. 
So when we were teenagers and we thought that we'd grow up and what we would stand for and what we would be and what we would learn and what we would do, that's a question that, that, that I can deal with. I don't know about the teenage self. Let that teenage self go out there and do all that nonsense. It's almost like you think of your teenage self as a bit of a different person who the path, the things they do, the path they follow is, is not... Uh, determinative to how you end up? Is, is that almost how, how you're mm. approaching the question? No, I think it really is. But I, the concerns of a teenage self and the big questions and, the, and the, the way that you are in the world, that's stuff that I don't think about anymore mm. or I think about them differently. And I think you need to do the stuff at the right time. I think your concerns of teenage, you don't want to... You want yes. to investigate those now. You don't want to become somebody who's still still trying the things that you did from a different era. But no, I'm absolutely the I'm, I'm absolutely the person plus decades that I was at a teenager. Um, you know, another way of um, thinking about would my what was the expectation of my teenage self? Um, is what are the expectations of the past on the present? Mm. So not just my teenage self, but I think about it, you know, what did my family and going way back, what were they trying to establish for this generation and are we responding appropriately? There's a Kwame Appiah's great essay, it's online, it's in the New York Times, is a, um, a text that we use at Cranlana and it's what will future generations condemn us for? And he goes through and he just uses a couple of examples, uh, the way we treat animals, the way we treat our elderly, um, can't remember the others. I mean, it seems so clear. And he goes through and uses the example of slavery. And he says, you know, in slavery, when slavery was around, it wasn't as if one day we thought slavery was great and then the next day we thought it wasn't. That there were voices of dissent during the time of slavery saying, this isn't right, mm. this isn't the way to behave, and all sorts of other indicators. And he says, those indicators are in these elements today. What else can we think of? So the way we treat our elderly, you know, there are still voices. There are voices now that say this is ridiculous, that elderly people aren't respected, that they're parked away, that, you know, there's, um, there are some stories in the news that come every three months about people being dehydrated or not looking after or mm. these sorts of things. I reckon future generations are just going to go, are you kidding me? You did what to your elderly? So what would my teenage self say? Oh, no, get on with it. I think what my ancestors would say is, uh, I think the question is, am I leading a life that respects what they put out, mm. what they suffered for and what they did and what their expectations were? And I think future generations, it's a very easy philosophical question to ask yourself, what will future generations condemn us for? Yes. What's something you used to believe but no longer do? I think I used to believe that um, 
people were very self-interested in public life. I don't know that I do anymore. I'm pretty sure I don't. When are you most happy? I'm most happy... um, I am most deliriously happy when I'm with my partner at the fresh food market, at Victoria Market, on a Saturday morning, buying up what's in season. And the day is full of promise. I love that. That's my, that's my, that's my nirvana. Do you have a uh, favourite uh, fruit that you're, uh, you're enjoying at the moment? Um, I, am, um, I am rekindling my love affair with the tomato. Hmm. What particular kind of tomato? The tomatoes have just gone... <laughs> oh, okay, have we got another hour? The Absolutely. Tomatoes have Treat us just... on tomato, please, Kate. <laughs> the tomatoes used to be tasteless and watery and you'd yeah. always say, oh, I sh- I'll just grow my own. And mm. they were delicious and they were like these orbs of deliciousness. But now you can buy those. Um, I love the Adelaide tomatoes. I love the... Um, um, the beefsteak tomatoes. I love, they are delicious. They have got a, you can smell them. They've got a perfume. What's and you can buy them. You don't have to grow them anymore. You have to grow other things, but you don't have to grow them. Yes. What's the most important thing you do in your life to stay mentally and physically healthy? Um, it's common garden. I see friends. I cook. And I hang out at home. I renovate. That's um, I, I'm renovating. I'm obsessed with renovation. <laughs> I am a, um, a very bad handy person, but man, give me a paintbrush, I'm happy. Uh, give me a paintbrush and a very bad radio station. <laughs> so that's when you re- you you allow yourself to listen to to trash radio. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> is that is that your chief guilty pleasure? Oh, I think so. I think so. I like to complain about the music station. I like to I like to give them. They've got three strikes batter out, but if they play Huey Lewis and Billy Joel and Air Supply in a row, then they're gone. <laughs> <laughs> and it's on to the next trash radio station. That's right. That's right. Uh, and finally, which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Um, I, I, I couldn't say one. I mean, my, my parents, my friends, people who have shown me great kindnesses. Peter Singer has messed up dinner parties for all of my life. Um, <laughs> there was, Tell me a little more about that. Oh, because I'm a vegetarian and they're really awkward. Right, right, okay. So um, not, not, not personally, but through his, no. uh, his, his impact on your culinary impress. <laughs> no, impressed. I can't ring him I, I just imagine again. Peter Singer kind of being a complete bore and getting drunk and no. smashing plates and so on. No, you're talking about his effect via his books. I would love to have dinner with Peter Singer. Um, um, there have been people who have shown me enormous kindnesses and, and there are too many to name. Kate Letterman, thank you for sharing your wisdom on the Good Life podcast today. Thank you, Andrew. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. We love getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. Next week, I'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.